Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies with your speaker, Chris McCann. If you'd like more information or to hear more studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now, with your evening Bible study, here's Chris McCann. Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Genesis. Tonight is study number 10 of Genesis chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 18 and 19 to start with. Genesis 9 verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. Now, we've encountered um, Noah and his sons before. Uh, we, I think, have discussed their names, but just as a reminder, the name Shem is 8035 in the Hebrew concordance of Strong's, and it is identical to 8034 in spelling, and 8034 is the Hebrew word for name. For instance, in the genealogy, we read Kara Shem called his name. That's the same name as Shem, the son of Noah. Then there's Japheth, and the number for Japheth in Strong's Hebrew Concordance is 3315. It's a little difficult to understand and, and, uh, I, I don't understand. I'm not sure of the meaning of the of the word Japheth. The third son of Noah, and God does point out that these are the three sons of Noah. So we know that God's purpose is in view. As three points to the purpose of God. The third son is Ham, and Ham is the number 2526 in Strong's Hebrew Concordance. It comes from 2525. Again, it's identical spelling and identical vowel pointing. And 2525 is translated as hot or warm. Also, there's another Hebrew word, 2524, that is likewise identical to these other two numbers, 2525 and 2526, Ham. And 2524 is translated as father-in-law. So it's very unusual. I'm not sure the significance of either um, Ham being hot or warm or how father-in-law relates, but... That is what the word translated as Ham points to. So we have the three sons of Noah, and God tells us again that they went forth from the ark. And then he tells us something interesting at the end of verse 18, when he says, after after telling us uh, the sons were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, that's interesting because um, we're only told about 
Canaan, that is of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Each one of them had sons. They had multiple sons. But God um, focuses only on one of them, Ham, and only on one of Ham's sons. And Ham had, again, several sons. If we go to Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Repheth, and Togermah, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, and their nations. And then in verse 6, And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabata, and Raama, and Sepacha, and the sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan, and Cush, begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Jehovah. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Jehovah, in the beginning of his kingdom, was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar, out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kela. And uh, we we also read of Shem over in verses 21 and 22 of Genesis 10, And unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born, the children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. And it, it continues on uh, giving us um, additional generations. So we see Shem, Ham, and Japheth all had children. They all had sons. And yet God only tells us um, in, in verse 18, he, he only reveals that Ham is the father of Canaan. He doesn't say anything about Shem's sons or Japheth's sons, just Ham is the father of Canaan. And more than that, as far as Ham is concerned, uh, he had Cush and Mizraim and Put. He had three other sons, and Canaan was the fourth. And if they're listed in, in order of their birth, then Canaan would be the lastborn, and Cush would have been the firstborn. So we wonder why did God select this bit of information when he he could have again um, said that Shem was the father of of um, Elam or 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 Japheth was the father of so and so, but he focuses in on Ham and Canaan. Now this is significant. Because uh, when we read the following verses, verses 20 through 27, we're going to read 
that Noah uh, gets drunk and he's lying naked in his tent and Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without and then Shem and Japheth cover him and once Noah wakes up, here's what he says in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 9. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. So we we wonder, this is a curious thing for Noah to say, as, as far as the historical account goes, Ham is the one that saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Canaan doesn't seem to be in view. He wasn't mentioned. Why does Noah curse Canaan? And that would seem to go along with why God is signaling out Canaan, that Ham is the father of Canaan, in verse 18, because there's a special emphasis and focus on Canaan. Now, we'll have to um, answer that question a little later on when we uh, get into the historical parable of Noah and his drunkenness, and uh, Lord willing, we'll do that in a little while in our study. But right now, we should note concerning Ham concerning Ham, that when we read in Genesis 10 of his sons, we saw that Nimrod was the founder of Babel. And that would basically be the kingdom of Babylon. Nimrod founded Babel, and out of that land of Shinar, they went forth, the descendants of Ham, Nimrod, went forth, Asher and build a Nineveh. So not only Babylon comes from Nimrod and therefore from Ham, but Nineveh became the Assyrian capital. The kingdom of Assyria could also trace its lineage back to Ham. And that's important because Babylon was the, the evil kingdom led by King Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed the people of God of Judah in the south. Assyria, led by the evil king of Assyria, were the ones that destroyed um, the nation of Israel that had identification with the kingdom of God in the north. And both can, again, trace their ancestry to Ham. And more than that, the Bible tells us Concerning Ham, we we read um, some interesting things in the Psalms, beginning in Psalm 78 and in verse 51. And smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength, in the tabernacles of Ham. In Psalm 105... Beginning in verse 23, it says Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and he increased his people greatly 
and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people to deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. And one more verse in Psalm 106, verse 22. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and terrible things by the Red Sea. In all three verses, or actually four times in the psalm, Egypt is identified as the land of Ham. And Egypt is used in the Bible as a great nation to represent the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness. It identifies with the world and occasionally with a fallen church that's returned to bondage. And so we have uh, in the person of Ham a man that is the father of the Egyptians, he's the father of the Babylonians, and he's the father of the Assyrians. All the major enemies of God and the kingdom of heaven, um, you, you can't find uh, three nations that are more hostile that are more antagonistic than those three nations against, again, God's corporate body of national Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, Remember, it was Egypt that held Israel captive, and again, the Assyrians destroyed Israel in the north, Babylon destroyed Judah in the south. And even Canaan, Canaan, a son of Ham, the land of Canaan, was set against the people of God, did battle with the Israelites once they crossed the Jordan and and the conquest of the land was underway. There was battle after battle between the inhabitants of the land, Canaanites, and the people of God, and even after Israel uh, obtained the land and dwelled in the land for generations thereafter because they did not drive all of the Canaanites out. They would have battles with the people of Canaan, with, with various nations that were in the land of Canaan. So we can see when we're reading of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, why God signals out Ham Ham is a representation of the enemies of the kingdom of God. And, well, uh, concerning Canaan, we'll again have to get into that a little later when we move further along into Genesis 9. Right now, let's go into verse 20. We'll read that verse in Genesis 9, verse 20. And Noah began to be a husbandman, And he planted a vineyard. Noah, we've seen, has been used of God as a type of Christ. Uh, It it was through Noah, the ark was built. And the ark was a vessel of deliverance, of salvation. It it saved Noah's family. As we read in Hebrews, uh, Noah built an ark to the saving of his house. And... When we read of a house in the Bible, a spiritual house, 
we we know that the Bible speaks of Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? So Noah constructs and builds the ark, saving his house, the other seven members of his family, and they are representative of God's elect, and Noah is picturing the deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal God, God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And, and so when we, we read that Noah began to be a husbandman and he planted a vineyard. Well, um, we're not surprised to find when we look up husbandman in the New Testament in John chapter 15 and in verse 1 it says I am the true vine and and that's Christ speaking and my father is the husbandman God is likened to a husbandman and that's exactly who Noah is representing spiritually as we read and now the historical account is beginning to start to build uh, to to look forward to uh, the rest of the bible and and all the many things that god has to tell us in his word it's going to paint a picture of god's overall salvation program and within god's overall salvation program the father is the husbandman and a husbandman is someone who plants a vineyard and he he then uh takes care of the vineyard and in order to do that uh, it requires rain um and then the fruit begins to grow and and all the many pictures the bible uses to reveal god's salvation program as we know that God speaks of the first rain, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the early rain of the church age, and the latter rain, uh, the the gospel that fell during the second part of the Great Tribulation period, and the fruit, the first fruits, all those saved during the church age, and Christ, the first of the first fruits, as he went to the cross in 33 AD. He was the fruit that that Israel brought forth and then the church age the first of the first fruits and finally the great multitude that comes out of great tribulation as God saves a, a great multitude outside of the churches and congregations during that second part of the little season of the great tribulation so God is the husbandman we read in James chapter 5 verse 7 be patient therefore brethren unto the coming of the lord behold the husbandman waiteth who's the husbandman jesus told us i am the true vine my father is the husbandman so god the father waits as it says here behold the husbandman waiteth what's he waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. We could uh, understand that to mean his elect. All 
of those predestinated to salvation. They are the fruit. God waits. This is all set in the context of the coming of the Lord. The Lord does not come in judgment because the husbandman is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And just like in the garden, there's times and seasons. There's a time to plant and a time for the rain to fall upon that which is planted, a time for the fruit to grow, a time to pluck up that which was planted. And it already has all taken place over the course of many centuries and even thousands of years. So God has been extremely patient. And that's what this verse is telling us. The husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until... And when we read that word until, remember that it's found after telling us of God's long patience. And therefore, he will have long patience. He will wait. He he will not pour out his wrath, in other words, until he received the early and latter rain. Once the rains fall, and the early rain coincides with the first fruits during the church age, but God still did, uh, it, it was not the overall coming of the Lord for the whole world. It was the Lord's coming in judgment against the church at that point, but still there was salvation to take place. There, there was another aspect of God's program that had to be worked out outside of the churches and congregations, and another season of rain had to fall, little season, but still another season had to fall before God could um, be vengeful, before he could in wrath close the door of heaven and so forth. So he waits. He, he waits 1,955 years for the early rain. Then... Uh, judgment begins at the house of God and, and uh, 2300 evening mornings later on September 7th, 1994, God then pours out the latter rain. And while it's raining, spiritually, figuratively, he waits. He continues to wait. The world by this time is getting increasingly more wicked. Uh, everything is becoming seemingly chaotic. Satan's deadly wound has been healed. The nations are worshiping the beast. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And it's as though the world is screaming, shaking their fist at God, daring him to judge them. And God patiently waits. He holds back for... 6,100 more days of the latter rain period. Then comes May 21, 2011. The early rain has already 23 years earlier elapsed or expired. And now on May 21, 2011, on the 8,400th day of the Great Tribulation and the 6,100th day of latter rain, that that period of rain comes to an end. And 
Now the husbandman is no longer patiently waiting. He has received the rain, and the rain has brought his elect all to be saved, were saved, the whole company of the elect, everyone whose name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that they have all uh, been safely brought in uh, to the kingdom of God. Christ has saved them. It's just like the image in Matthew 25 of the five wise virgins entering in, and then the door shuts. God the Father, the husbandman, shuts the door. He has received all the fruit that he ever intended to receive. There is no more fruit out there remaining, or he wouldn't shut the door. He shuts the door, and the implication is, in in this verse, he ceases to be long-suffering. And notice in Second Peter chapter 3, it says in verse 15, an account, or you can figure, or reckon, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. You see, that's what um, James 5-7 is really saying. When the husbandman waits, when the husbandman has long patience for it, until he receives the early and latter rain, we can account that means salvation. And once the two periods of rain have fallen, and there's no more latter rain, and again, the strong implication is the husbandman is no longer patient, he, he's no longer waiting, but he pours out his wrath, and it's only due to the fact that there's no more salvation, because long-suffering is or equals salvation. And when God ceases to be long-suffering, it is due to the fact that there is no more salvation possible, no more available. The day of salvation has concluded, the day in which Christ performs the work, and what is the Father's work, that ye may believe, we read in John 6, when the day is over, the 12-hour workday, Christ no longer performs that work of granting belief to spiritually dead sinners because there is just simply no more elect to be found. Then the night comes in which no man can work. And, and it's also implied here um, relative to the seasons. There are seasons in which salvation occurs. But after the latter rain, and the latter rain we know is falls simultaneous with the second part of the Great Tribulation. After the latter rain, there's no more seasons. There's no more rain. It's the latter rain. It's called latter rain for the reason that it is the last rain. There, There is no additional rain. This is the problem that people have when they try to insist that God is still saving. Well, it, uh, where is the season? If they can find another season, if they can find another period of rain in the Bible, well, uh, that would be well and good. 
and and God's people would embrace it if it was in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. Immediately after the tribulation, we could understand is immediately after the latter rain, there is spiritual darkness. The sun is darkened. The moon does not give its light. The stars fall. Language that matches the cessation of salvation. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies. You can hear these studies Monday through Friday over PalTalk, Skype, eBible Fellowship's webcast audio, or over your phone. For more information or to hear other studies, visit www.ebiblefellowship.com. Until our next study, may the Lord's perfect will be done.